Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 12, 1 Kings chapter 7. Well, we're most of the way through the description of the first temple and its ornate and varied furnishings. And we're going to finish that discussion today. And then before we study the all-important consecration and ordination of Solomon's temple that appears in 1 Kings chapter 8, we're going to spend the rest of our time today following the saga of the first temple through almost four centuries of Israelite history until it is finally destroyed at the hands of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. The saga of the temple is quite instructive because it essentially gives us an overview of the several kings of Israel and Judah and what we're going to see is that there were some good ones and some very wicked ones. Now last week we ended by talking about the Molten Sea, which was a huge pot of water that held around 12,000 gallons of Maim Haim, all right, living water. Now living water wasn't water that had been ritually blessed. It was merely water from a moving source, like a river or an artesian spring. It was the priests and not any other who used the water from the sea. And it was primarily for the washing of their hands and feet. The purpose of washing was for sanctification. By means of washing their hands and their feet, which represent the extremities of their bodies, these priests were demonstrating the complete devotion of their entire bodies, all of their being, to the Lord and especially to the ritual services that they were about to perform on behalf of the people of Israel. <clears throat> now it's from this ritual washing that the priests did that the sages eventually, well before Jesus' day, made it, made it a tradition that all Jews should do ritual hand washing before they pray or before they eat. Now, we shouldn't leave this subject of the molten sea without noting that in Ezekiel's temple of a future time during the millennial period, there will be no molten sea. And while Christ is reigning, there will be rituals in the temple. What we see is that much like what happens when after, after heaven and earth have passed away and all is made new that occurs after the thousand year reign of Messiah and certain elements of temple worship that at an earlier time were but earthly symbols of heavenly things, well they've now been replaced by the heavenly things themselves. Thus Ezekiel 47.1 tells us in his divine vision for this millennial temple that this, is, this um, 
graphic has is, is been made after. He says this, Then he brought me back to the entrance of the house, and I saw water flowing eastward from under the threshold of the house, for the house faced east. The water flowed from under uh, the right side of the house south of the altar. So, during the millennial kingdom period, we're going to have living water flowing like a river from under the temple itself with God as its source. This never-ending source of Mayim Chaim, which is going to be used for sanctification, means there is no longer a need to gather living water through pipes to be placed into this great pot called the Molten Sea. And we find a parallel situation in the new earth at the end of the millennium when there is no temple. But instead, God is the temple. And we read about that in Revelation 21. In Revelation 21.1 it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had passed away and the sea was no longer there. Notice, by the way, we're told the sea is no longer there. Now, although the usual interpretation of this term, the sea, makes it that we're referring to oceans, I think that's not the case at all. I think it's referring to the molten sea. Mm-hmm. That great pot of water all right, that was central to priestly ritual. That sea. See, what we need to understand is that just as the entry into the millennial kingdom began a series of changes to move us closer and closer to a full spiritual reality of God's principles and further and further away from the physical objects of ritual that were merely shadows and patterns of God's divine principles. So after the millennium, in the new earth, we've come full circle. Not only is there no longer a sea, the molten sea, there isn't even a physical temple anymore. Revelation 21 21 through 27 reads like this. The twelve city gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The city's main street was pure gold, transparent as glass. I saw no temple in the city. For Adonai, God of heaven's armies, He is the temple, as is the Lamb. The city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's Shekinah gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor to it. Its gates will never close. They'll stay open all day because night will not exist there. And the honor and the splendor of the nations will be brought unto it. Nothing impure may enter it, nor anyone who does shameful things or lies. The only only ones who may enter 
are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. See, thus, not only is no physical temple needed, because God, who is spirit, is the temple, there's not even a sun or a moon because we don't need physical light, physical light waves any longer. We don't need physical light waves because our physical eyes that require physical light waves to operate have been exchanged for bodies and eyes that are now completely perfected and thus fully spiritual in nature. So instead of the light emitted from the sun and the moon, Meator, we're going to bask in the Lord's spiritual illumination, His ore for all eternity. Thus we see the progressive revelation of the temple that originally began in heaven as a spiritual ideal and in time it became a a physical object built by men's hands beginning with Moses in the wilderness tabernacle and then finally at the time of a new earth it comes completely to a full circle as it returns to being of a totally spiritual substance, substance in which God himself is that temple. And this is why, as believers, we need to study the temple from beginning to end and in all of its various stages because its journey reveals that divine pattern. Let's get to the next objects used in the temple service by reading the remainder of 1 Kings chapter 7. 1 Kings chapter 7. We're going to start uh, at verse 27, which if you have a complete Jewish Bible is page 376. going to start at verse 27. He made ten bronze trolleys, each one seven feet long, seven feet wide, five and a quarter feet high. They were designed with panels that were set between the corner posts, and on the panels between the corner posts were lions and oxen and cherubim, cherubim. The corner posts above were similarly designed, and below the lions and oxen were wreaths of hammered work. Every trolley had four bronze wheels and bronze axles, and its four legs each had cast supports which were under the basin with wreaths next to each. The opening of the stand into which the basin was inserted was 18 inches high. The stand was round, resembling a pedestal. It was two and a half feet in diameter, and on the stand were carvings, and the outside was square, not round. The four wheels were under the panels, and the axles for the wheels were attached to the trolleys, and each wheel was two and a half feet in diameter. The wheels were made like chariot wheels. Their axles, rims, spokes, and hubs were all cast metal. There were four supports at the four corners of each trolley. The supports were attached to the trolley itself, and in the top of the trolley was a circular uh, support, ten and a half inches high, and the trolley's corner posts and panels were attached to its top. And on the sides of the panels and on its corners, he carved karuvim, cherubim, lions, palm trees. 
according to the amount of space each required with wreaths surrounding. And according to this design, he made the ten trolleys, and all of them were cast from a single mold, so they all had the same size and shape. Hiram made... Uh, oh, sorry. He made ten bronze basins. Each basin's capacity was 220 gallons and had a diameter of seven feet. And there was a basin for each of the ten trolleys. And he arranged five of the trolleys on the right side of the house, five on the left, and the sea he placed on the right side of the house towards the southeast. Hiram made the ash pots, shovels, and sprinkling basins. And with that, Hiram completed all the work he had done for King Shlomo in the house of Adonai. The two columns, the two moldings of the capitals on top of the columns, the two nettings covering the two moldings of the capitals atop the columns, the four 400 pomegranates for the two nettings, two rows of pomegranates for each netting to cover the two moldings of the capital atop the columns, the ten trolleys, the ten basins on the trolleys, the one sea, the twelve oxen under the sea, the ash pot, shovels, and the sprinkling basins. All these articles that Hiram made for King Shlomo and the house of Adonai were of burnished bronze. The king cast them in the plain of the Yardyan and the clay ground between Sukkot and Sartan. Shlomo did not weigh any of these objects because there were so many of them. Thus the total weight of the bronze couldn't be determined. Now Shlomo made all the objects that were inside the house of Adonai. The gold altar, the table of gold on which the showbread was displayed. The menorahs, five on the right, five on the left in front of the sanctuary of pure gold. The flowers, lamps, and tongs of gold. The cups, snuffers, basins, incense pans, fire pans of pure gold. The hinges of gold, both those for the doors of the inner house, the especially holy place, and those for the doors of the house that is of the temple. Thus all the work that King Shlomo did in the house of Adonai was finished. And after this, Shlomo brought in the gifts which David, his father, had dedicated, the silver, the gold, the utensils, and put them in the treasuries in the house of Adonai. Ten labor stands made of bronze were built by Hiram the skilled craftsman so that several substantial size pots of living water were mobile and they could be moved around this inner courtyard and they generally consisted of two parts the lower part with wheels called a trolley and then the or a mechona alright in Hebrew that, that really means base and then the up, upper part that was called the basin or the laver called a kior in Hebrew but in Western thinking, a base with a set of wheels becomes a trolley. So that's the way it appears in our English Bibles. They were very ornate. Once again, decorated with cherubim. Lions, oxen were also included in the design. Palm trees. Now these trolleys were very large. However, there is disagreement over whether the quoted measurement of four cubits, around seven feet, in the scripture passage is referring to the diameter of the water basin or its height. The complete Jewish Bible 
makes it the diameter, which is possible since it's the same width and length of the trolley, meaning it would be stable when it was moved around. However, most Jewish sources say that the four cubits was the height of the basin, seven feet high, just the basin. But if you put a four cubit high water laver on top of a three cubit high rolling platform, that means the rim of the laver was somewhere around 11 to 12 feet off of the ground. No priest could ever reach that without a ladder. So my opinion is that the water basin was rather large in diameter, around seven feet, but probably pretty shallow, so not very tall. That would allow for priests to dip water, uh, dip, dip, dip into it for water with only needing perhaps like a footstool or something to reach it. Well, these rolling lavers of water were moved all around the courtyard so that the meat from the slaughtered animals could be ritually washed with with living water. Now, note that these pots of water, these, were not used um, for ritual washing of the priest's hands or feet. That was done from the water from the molten sea. Now, there were so many people coming with their sacrifices at, at any given moment that they had to spread out and make use of the entire temple courtyard. That was the reason for these ten rolling lavers that that could be repositioned as, as needed. Now we're told that they held around 220 gallons of water, probably a little bit more actually. And when they weren't in use, they were neatly located in two rows of five, in front of the temple entrance. Five lavers on one side of the entry, five on the other. Now some of these objects, we're told, were made in the Jordan River Valley between an area called Sartan and Sukkot. Other objects, no doubt, were made in Timnah, in the Timnah region inland of the Dead Sea. Now which was made where? is is very difficult to know. But it's hard to imagine that these dense metal objects were made on the eastern side of the Jordan River because then they'd have to somehow transport them across the water. Well, beginning with verse 49, the subject changes. From these large objects that were cast in bronze by Hiram to the more important sacred decorative objects that were made with gold, some with silver. And the verse begins by saying that King Shlomo made these golden objects. But that doesn't mean he did that personally. It just means that he oversaw the project. It was his administration that provided them. The purpose of all saying all that all right, was so that these objects weren't were, uh, were to, to explain that these objects weren't things added later by other kings. The idea, in the end, was to give Solomon credit for everything. Among the objects made of gold was the menorah, or better, the menorot, plural, because Shlomo had ten of them made, as opposed to the original one menorah. Verse 48 also speaks of two other temple furnishings made of gold. The incense altar. Do you see the smoke rising from here? And then the table of, of the loaves of showbread, which you see lined up here and here. 
In addition, there were various tongs and plates, bowls, pitchers. The chapter ends with Solomon giving the large amounts of expensive objects that his father David had collected for either use in the temple or or for financing its construction. However, for some reason, Solomon decided not to use them for temple service and instead merely to store them in the temple treasury. Now the Hebrew scholar Abarbanel suggests that the reason for this decision was rather straightforward. It was due to the prophetic message given to David through Nathan the prophet. And the message was, David was not to be engaged in building the temple. That David went ahead and drew up plans started collecting timbers from Lebanon, having implements for the temple designed and manufactured, and all the more, this was not a legitimate thing for him to have done. It may have followed the letter of God's oracle to David to not build the temple, but certainly not the spirit. David was to have nothing to do with the temple. That was reserved for Jehovah and for Shlomo. David, being the headstrong person he had become, thought he had a loophole. He'd just make all the preparations and all the plans for the temple, but he wouldn't actually construct it. He'd just control it all from the grave. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like us? It's clear from either the words of the Holy Scriptures or from godly wisdom given to us by someone that there's something we must not do, but we'll start immediately searching for a loophole that brings us right up to the edge so that we can get most of what we want. But we say that technically we were obedient to God. I don't think God buys that kind of convoluted rationale from us any more than he did from David. Well, now that the temple temple and all of its furnishings have been completed, and we have a pretty good idea now what all this looked like, let's go on a journey to see what happened to this temple from its birth to its destruction. We know that the Lord told Moses while he was on the Exodus journey that in time there was to be but one authorized place of worship and sacrifice for all Israel. And that instruction is recorded for us beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, 12, rather, 12, verse 5. I'll just read it to you. Rather, you are to come to the place where Adonai your God will put his name. He will choose it from all your tribes. You will seek out that place, which is where he will live and go there. You will bring there your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tenths, the offerings that you give, the offerings you have vowed, your voluntary offerings, and the firstborn of your cattle and sheep. There you will eat in the presence of Adonai, your God, and you will rejoice over everything you set out to do, you and your your households, in which Adonai, your God, has blessed you. You will not do things the way we do them here today where everyone does whatever in his own opinion seems right because you haven't yet arrived 
at the rest and inheritance which Adonai your God is giving you. (laughs) However, Israel was anything but quick to obey. They arrived in the land and immediately they built high places. Bama, as personal and private family worship centers. The various tribal coalitions didn't all recognize even the traditional site where the remnants of the wilderness tabernacle was erected as that single authorized place of worship. The evidence is that there was a temple in continuous operation almost continuously at least in Jerusalem from the time Solomon built and completed it around 960 BC until 586 BC when the Babylonians raised it. But there were changes. There were modifications to it. As well as allowing it to deteriorate or to be stripped of its valuable materials over that nearly four century time span. Well, shortly after Shlomo died, the kingdom of Israel fell into a civil war and it divided. The united kingdom of all 12 tribes that developed and thrived under David and Solomon split along long-held traditional tribal lines that can be identified and followed since the days of the Exodus. There had been separate and northern and southern tribal coalitions since the days of Joshua. And that's more or less the same way the nation divided. Thus, following Solomon, there were now two kings over two kingdoms. Rehoboam, king over Judah, and Jeroboam, king over Israel. Now let me take a moment to explain something that I've addressed before, but it's so very important to our understanding of the remainder of the Bible, and even of prophetic happenings that are current, or some that are future to our modern time. What we read in the next several chapters and books of the Old Testament is of two kingdoms. One called Judah, one called Israel. But in reality, the one called Israel was only a coalition of a group of ten tribes usually identified as the Northern Coalition. And it only used the name of Israel for a handful of decades after the Civil War split Solomon's former United Kingdom. Rather, the ten northern tribes, that ten northern tribe coalition was dominated by the tribe of Ephraim. And so that kingdom was named after him and called Ephraim. Thus, within 30 to 50 years, After Solomon's death in 925 B.C., there was the kingdom of Judah and there was the kingdom of Ephraim, also known as the kingdom of Israel or even Ephraim, Israel. Well, in the fifth year of Rehoboam's reign, he was king of Judah, Shishak, the pharaoh of Egypt, attacked and he plundered the temple in Jerusalem. The Egyptians took much of the precious gold and silver implements, furnishings, items stored in the, in the temple and in its warehouses. You know, one can easily imagine that from Shishak's perspective, this wasn't looting, 
This was restitution for all that gold and silver that the Israelites received from the Egyptians and took with them when they exited Egypt under Moses. This was the first major change now to Solomon's temple. Up in the north, the king of Israel, Jeroboam, ignored the temple in Jerusalem and instead he established two worship centers for his kingdom, one in Dan, one in Bethel, one for the people living up to the north, one for the people living in the southern end of his kingdom. And what went on in those places that purported to be worship of the God of Israel was sickening. Calf worship was established at Dan. All sorts of abominable cult practices were instituted. A separate priesthood was ordained. I've taken a number of tour groups to visit Dan. And the syncretism that took place there becomes immediately obvious. Even the remains of a square horned altar, typical of the temple altar, is still visible. But the people of the ten northern tribes mixed in worship of animals, worship of Baal, and there's strong evidence of human sacrifice. Now, Asa succeeded Rehoboam as king of Judah, and he ruled over Judah for about 40 years, until 868 B.C. And at the encouragement of his father, Avhyah, Asa tried to replenish the many gold and silver vessels that had been taken from the temple by Shishak. But in just a few years, he used those same expensive and valuable vessels to buy the mercenary services of Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, in order to defend himself against Baasha, who was now the king of Ephraim, Israel. The scripture seems to indicate that Asa also used some of the temple items to finance certain matters of his administration for his political benefit. Asa's son was Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat. And he inherited the monarchy directly from his father and reigned over Judah for 20 years. He seemed to be a king that the people liked and that they respected and thus was given valuable gifts, many of which were used to restore the looted ones taken from the temple. He was also a man who tried to bring back some godliness to his people, and so, some, so he sent some priests and Levites on a journey to the various clans of Judah to teach them the Torah. We're told they took with them the law, which probably meant what we today call the book of Deuteronomy. And this is because we know that Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomy scroll, was stored outside but alongside the Ark of the Covenant, not inside with the two stone tablets from Mount Sinai. Thus the high priest would not have been too fearful of borrowing that scroll for a while. Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, created an alliance with Ahav, king of Ephraim, Israel, through the usual means. His son married Ahav's daughter. 
And the two kings battled alongside one another against a foreign force from Aram. And as a result of, of coming very close to getting killed, this certain prophet informs Jehoshaphat that the Lord wasn't happy with him. So this seemed to spark another round of religious reform in Judah. In addition, he made some improvements to the temple by constructing another courtyard near to the temple. And likely this was an expansion of the existing one that he deemed as just too small. And during his era, the hilltop of Moriah, what we call the Temple Mount now, was being modified, it was being expanded with these shallow valleys next to the hill being filled with the soil of the low ridges that surrounded them, thus making the area level enough to add more buildings and defensive walls. However, after Jehoshaphat's death, the next several kings were bad kings, and they did evil things. Jehoram succeeded Jehoshaphat for a little over a decade. He was succeeded by Ahaziah, who barely lasted a year. Athaliah then took over, and he managed to hang on to the throne for about five years. His sons were worthless men who robbed the temple of valuable treasure for personal gain and even gave some of it to the temple of Baal. It's not that the temple in Jerusalem ceased to, comp to operate, but one can imagine the strain and the strangeness of what went on there in order to appease this wicked king and his sons. But Athaliah also had another son, a young one, named Joash. Joash. He reigned from 840 to about 800 BC. And during this time there was a high priest named Jehoiada that seemed to have been quite strong and he was given much authority to try and restore some sanctity to the temple operations as well as to instill a proper piousness in the people of Judah. He even organized the Levites into guard units and one of the units was assigned to watch over a place called the Gate of the Foundation. This apparently was a new gate into the temple area that was essentially built as a means to restore the temple building or maybe even to keep it from collapse. After all, by now, the original temple was over 150 years old. It had seen a lot of calamity. It had been looted on a number of occasions. Well, King Yoash was truly a reformer. But it appears that the elderly high priest Jehoiada was his mentor and his guide. For several years, Yoash collected funds from his fellow countrymen to restore the temple. And it seems that the northern kingdom of Ephraim probably contributed to it as well. Second Chronicles chapter 24 especially records this restoration project and the words are that the project was indeed completed. So apparently the temple was fully restored. How close to the original? That's anyone's guess. But I can easily imagine that by now what the original as built by King Shlomo exactly looked like wasn't even known. 
Unfortunately, the death of the high priest led to Yoash backsliding and losing his direction, and once again the temple fell into disrepair. Amasya took over after Yoash, but during his reign, the temple was looted again. However, this time it wasn't a foreign enemy doing the looting, but rather the new king of Ephraim, Israel, who did it, whose name also happened to be Joash. Of course, this is a different Joash. And he did it mainly for retribution against King Amaziah. Well, after him came his son Uzziah. We say Uzziah. And he takes us to the mid-700s B.C. Now, for a while... Uzziah had a listening ear to the wise and godly counsel of Zechariah. And so Judah regained some stature and some influence in the region. Uzziah's successes seemed to go to his head. Because for whatever reason, he decided... He wanted to be the one to burn incense on the altar of incense inside the Hechal, the holy place inside the temple. That was a definite no-no. As this ritual, even entry into the holy place, was restricted by Torah law to the priests. And as a result of doing this, Uzziah was cursed with Sarat. Now, most Bibles call this leprosy that he was cursed with. That's just not so. Sarat could indicate any number of skin diseases. But the point was that this skin disease was seen as a direct act of Jehovah to supernaturally take the inner condition of the person as God sees them and have them wear it on their exterior, their skin exposed for everybody to see. It was during this same era that the prophets Amos, Amos, and Yeshayahu, Isaiah, lived. And they both warned of a coming earthquake. It happened in the last year of Uzziah's reign and the quake severely damaged not just the building of the temple but seems to have actually disturbed the foundation and by the way Zechariah Zechariah is the one who said that far into the future there would one day be another earthquake so violent that the Mount of Olives would literally split and separate into two hills. This event is, of course, what the church generally says, marks the return of the Lord when His foot touches down on the Mount of Olives and sets off that devastating earthquake that even produces a new river that runs all the way to the Dead Sea. And interestingly, such a thing is entirely geographically possible because the Dead Sea is nearly 4,000 feet lower in elevation than Jerusalem. After Uzziah's time, it was Yotam's turn. Or we say Jotham. Okay, Yotam's turn to rule Judah. 
and he oversaw many repairs to the now badly damaged temple. He also constructed the so-called upper gate, yet another new addition to the temple. And no doubt this had a lot to do with stabilizing the stru structure and the grounds. But Yotam's son Ahaz took over after he died in 742 BC and Ahaz was a demon on steroids. <laughs> he so wrecked the temple that following him a long and extensive refurbishment was needed. Ahaz no sooner became king, and by the way this is all recorded in 2 Kings 16, he extracted all the wealth he could take from the holy building and gave it to Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria in order to woo him as an ally. Not only that, but when Ahaz went to visit Tiglath-Pileser up in Syria, he was so impressed with a certain altar to their god, he wanted one just like it for himself. The altar Solomon had built was now replaced with this new pagan-styled one. And the original altar was unceremoniously shoved out of the way. But that was just the beginning. Ahaz defaced the molten sea by taking it down off the backs of the bronze oxen. He cut the legs off of the rolling water lavers and even rededicated part of the temple complex to that Assyrian god he was so impressed with. He also ordered the building of a large number of other altars to the various gods all over Jerusalem. The temple became so ruined, the priests so enraged at him, that he responded by shuttering the temple doors and ending the temple rituals. But God was not yet done with his temple. Soon there would arise a king who would restore this dilapidated and deviled place to glory. And that's what we'll talk about next time.